it's, uh, it's good to know that uh, Josh, our sound guy, has gone on holiday, so he's clearly going to have a job when he gets back. Um, but uh, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, yes, my son turned nine months yesterday. He is like the best. Objectively, he is the best kid in the world. And um, he, he, I married uh, a Kiwi who's my heart. So you know boys are never shorter than their moms. So the Blairs, like I'm the tallest Blair by far, and the Blairs are going to have some heart in the future. Uh, and he's, he's nine months, but he's wearing, he's bigger than his cousin who's two years old. Uh, so that's just boding well for the future. And obviously he can play for the Springboks or the All Blacks. This might be a little bit presumptuous of me. But anyway, um, but anyway, it's good to be with you guys. And uh, I'm going to be kicking off a series on Romans, uh, The Faith to Quit. And sometimes it takes more faith to give up than it does to keep going. And so that's, uh, we'll get into some of that. And um, we began this year as a leadership in our church. We really felt like we wanted to teach through the book of Romans this year. And so in uh, our first two weeks uh, of Bible school, we're doing three installments of Bible school this year. In our first two weeks, uh, we did Romans 1, 2, and 3. Uh, we liked Romans 3 so much, we thought we'd do it again. So I'm going to be speaking on Romans 3 today. And, uh, and in the series, we'll do Romans 3, 4, 5, 6. And then uh, in Bible school, we're going to continue 7, 8, 9, and then work our way well, we'll get to 12 in this uh, cycle, and then later in the year we'll finish, complete the book of Romans. So you literally will have a chapter-by-chapter teaching of the book of Romans this year. Um, Romans is a mighty book. Uh, it's a letter written to a church of Rome, uh, and it's 7,000 words long. So let me just give you a sense of the kind of like the, the scope and the... <coughs> the way to the book of Romans. In the ancient world, um, letters were incredibly expensive to, to write because they had to have parchment and all that stuff and to transport. So the average letter was between 20 and 200 words. The longest letter that they have outside of the New Testament is 4,000 words. Romans is 7,000 words. 3,000 words longer than the longest letter outside the New Testament. So you've got to understand the weight of what Paul was communicating to uh, this church in Rome uh, and the, the depth and breadth of what he's saying. And so it is this mighty book. It's not like the full scope of Paul's gospel, what's known as Paul's gospel, uh, but it certainly does lay a foundation in our thinking. Now, if you get your head around the book of Romans, it's really going to aid you. Uh, and here's why we, we want to do this is because Truth is important. And I want to ask you that question, how important is truth? And I want to back that up a little bit to, to kind of frame this for us in our thinking. How important is an idea? Because every shift in history has emerged around an idea. And here's the thing about ideas. Not all ideas are true, but all truth obviously is an idea. It starts there, but every shift in history emerged around an idea. So from the book of Romans, we had this idea of personal salvation through personal faith, uh, not the church or any other uh, uh, means, which gave rise to the Reformation, which changed Europe and through that the world. Uh, in 1644, there was a, a Scottish pastor who wrote this paper called uh, Lex, Rex Lex versus Lex Rex. I'm throwing Latin at you this morning, so obviously you all know. But anyway, so Rex is king and Lex's law. And so the predominant thinking of their day is that the king is law. And so whatever the king says is law. And the Scottish minister came along and said, actually, the law is king. 
So even the king should be subject to the law. It's why in the Western world we can impeach presidents today because the president is not the law, the president is subject to the law. We had something called the scientific method, which is uh, that truths or, or the material universe can be observed, and that's how we know truth about it. So it must be observed and tested. That gave rise to the Renaissance. You had this idea that people should choose their own leaders and those leaders should be subject to the, to the people. That gave rise to democracy. You had the idea of a free market economy that actually government's job is to create freedom for the economy to work. Willing seller, willing buyer, that principle. And it really lay claim to, I suppose, Western capitalism uh, and even people who believe that the government should play a role still, as a principle, bind to the idea of free market economy. All of these were ideas that radically shifted the world. But not every idea is equal. So, for example, uh, probably 150 years ago, uh, the ideas of democracy and communism started to emerge, and they emerged at roughly the same time. Both people who held to these different ideas uh, wanted to improve government systems and enable humans, people to thrive. They just believed it had to have a better government. And so in a massive social experiment, entire countries adopted one of these two ideas, democracy or communism. Those who ad uh, adopted democratic ideas gave rise to the most prosperous peaceful era in the history of the world. Those who gave, adopted the ideas of communism gave rise to tyrannical failed bankrupt states that took to controlling the life of their people. I've been in a museum to the communist rule of East Berlin, East Germany. I've, I've been there, I've stood there, and I've, I've seen letters and literally a tenth of the population was involved in spying on the rest of the population. People couldn't trust their neighbors a simple conversation could be reported to the police and they could be arrested, detained without warrants. Why? Because the, the, the communist ideal is that the, the state is supreme. And their role is really came to be controlling people. Uh, in communist regimes killed 100 to 150, 120 to 150 million of their own citizens. So these two ideas emerged at the same time and they ended in radically different spaces. Democracy gave rise to human flourishing, the, the most peaceful, it's not a perfect system of government, but the most peaceful, prosperous states the world's ever known, and communism gave rise to death in a bankrupt, failed, miserable states. And here's the thing, both of those people who bought into one of those ideas both thought they were right. It just took a hundred years for the world to find out which one was really true in the sense that it gave rise to, biblical, uh, to human thriving and human flourishing. So I've got a question for you this morning. What ideas do you have in your head that maybe you'll only discover in two decades whether they're right or not? Maybe you've got ideas about raising your children and you'll only discover when they're a teenager or young adults whether those ideas set them up for life. Maybe you've got ideas about finances and you'll only find out when you come to retirement age whether you're really right. <laughs> Maybe you've got ideas about God and salvation and you'll only find out on judgment day whether you're really right. So I've got a question again. What ideas do you have in your head floating around up there? And is there any way of knowing whether, they can, whether they're true in the biblical sense of true that they set you up for thriving? All God's truths work and cause people to thrive in peace. You know, sometimes God speaks a truth to us and at first it's like, yo, that's hard to hear, God. 
But once you embrace it and once you accept it, it produces freedom in our lives. How do we know if the ideas we have in our head is going to lead us to a peaceful, prosperous future or a future that's bankrupt, failed, and miserable? Is there any way of knowing? And that's what the Bible calls truth. That's why we study the Bible, because God's spoken to us. And we go, how do we understand this and embrace these truths? Because they're going to set up our lives to thrive. And Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. God's truth might start as inconvenient, but ends in freedom. Have you ever wrestled with dark, tyrannical thoughts? Ever found yourself in a pattern of thinking you knew was toxic, but you didn't know how to get yourself out of it? Anyone? Just me? Me and Steve. That's awesome. You see, those of us who have found ourselves in those dark spaces of our lives, when we found truth, it became valuable to us because we know the freedom that it contained. Why? Because truth is powerful. And the greatest danger to truth is not political or physical violence, but the watering down of truth until there's no longer truth, and then it becomes a shackle to the human heart. Let me explain by the way of example. Don't worry, I'm going to get to Romans just now. I'm just framing the conversation. In the 15th century, hundreds of years, uh, for hundreds of years, the Roman Catholic Church laid claim to salvation. And they taught a means of salvation that was no salvation at all. Now, to be sure, I don't want to rail against Catholics here this morning. I know uh, in our church, I don't know about this one, but certainly in our church in Florida Road, I've met many people that come from a Catholic background, and there's really so many wonderful parts of that tradition that we need to honor. But, and I also want to be sure of this, that a church that preaches a salvation that's, not, that's no salvation at all isn't particular to the Roman Catholic Church of that period. It's been done by many churches and many preachers, myself included, at times. But they were the church with the loudest voice at that time in history, and so it's their voice that we hear from the pages of history. And into the arms of this church, a church that taught a salvation that was no salvation at all, came a, a young man eager to please God and find a salvation, a young man by the name of Martin Luther. We've got a picture of him this morning. Good-looking fella. And that church taught that the means of salvation was by faith in Christ and by good deeds. So you had to do both. And in fact, they had this form of salvation or this process of getting saved that between physical death and getting into heaven, they had something called purgatory. Because what they said is that, you know, people, Christians still sin, and so you still had to be purified of those sins. And so you got to go to this place called purgatory where you got purified of your sins by fire. Not so fun. And then after you were purified, then you could go to heaven. And the thing is, you could shorten your stay in purgatory by doing really good things, not doing naughty things. And, other, and some of the good things that they had were like, you know, if you, you could buy indulgences. You could literally pay money to the church. They'd give you a piece of paper and say, ah, shorter time in purgatory. Or if you didn't have money, you could go to war for the Catholic Church. You, you became a soldier, the Crusades, that sort of stuff. So it's kind of like today, you know, the rich people can buy their future and the poor people go to the army. Um, and, and so into that space stepped a young man eager to, to please God. And Martin Luther dedicated his life to becoming a monk. And he said he would spend his whole life in singular worship to God and service to God. And surely such an act would gain God's forgiveness and provide assurance of heaven. But after years and years and years of trying, a decade or so, Martin Luther found 
After trying to be a good Christian and trying to please God, the more he struggled with temptation and sin. And he saw within himself every kind of malice and greed. And the harder he tried, the more he realized that God couldn't bless someone like him because he saw his own sinfulness. And into that place in Martin Luther's life came the salvation. There was no salvation at all. And the church preached that God was angry with sinners. And the, the heart of that preaching was to scare the people into changed behavior. But he had been scared and he still hadn't changed. And so now all there was was the anger of God. And Luther actually wrote that as a young man, after years of trying his hardest to be good enough for God, he had actually grown to hate this righteous God that condemns sinners, that smashed them by the laws and commands, and then inflicted his wrath on them. He actually grew to hate that God. Ever spent time in church, and you went there sincerely to find God and find some kind of hope for your life, and you walked out feeling guilty, condemned, not good enough? Anyone here? Ever. Maybe not this church, another church, okay? Don't worry, Nat's in the front, you can't look backwards. <laughs> you see, a church that taught us salvation, there was no salvation at all, wasn't unique to Luther's day. So many of us have found ourselves in that same space. And I know my story is I started as a young man in ministry, eager to please God, passionate for Him, And after years of trying my absolute best to live a life that pleased him, I still struggled with the same sin. I still struggled with the same things. And I grew despondent to the point of depression and burnout. For it appeared that I could not live without God and I could not live with him either. And that's a terrible place to be. And so into the darkness of that space, after years of struggling and believing in salvation, there was no salvation at all. Into the darkness of that space sprang the gospel. Into my heart and into Luther's heart. And after fighting with those dark, tyrannical thoughts and finding the beauty of this truth, Martin Luther gave the rest of his life to preaching it, often at great danger to himself. Luther actually wrote, When I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost, and the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. What was the that that he discovered that Luther taught to the world? Romans chapter 3. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. I've got a a plan for today. I'm going to spend about 10 minutes trying to make you depressed. If I do my job properly, in 10 minutes time you'll be depressed. And then 10 minutes later, you'll be happy. Okay, so you've got to trust me. You've got to go with the flow here. Also, if you're going to leave early today, this will be on podcast, but only on Tuesday, so Monday will be rough. But essentially, there's only two ways of having a relationship with God. One involves our works. Even some of them, we're like, yeah, I know, I believe in Jesus. Jesus died for me, but also my works, they play a role there. And the other involves only His grace. And so I'm going to explain where the first one leads. If you believe that it's, you know, my faith plus my works is how I get saved or how I grow in God or how God's happy with me, 
then you're going to end up depressed. And so I'm going to take you on this journey of your heart, hopefully. If it's our works we trust in, then what we will find ourselves saying is something like this. God sees my heart. Because what we mean is, I'm doing my best to try to live a life that pleases God, and I don't always do that correctly. And so God sees my heart. And when we sin, what we call that is, I made a mistake. A mistake is something you didn't intend to do. Sin, on the other hand, the Bible is very clear, doesn't give us that wiggle room. Actually, Jesus taught, out of the heart flows evil thoughts, adultery, murders, all these things. And so here's the thing, is if God sees our hearts when we're doing good, surely God also sees our hearts when we're doing sin. Surely those acts actually prove that our hearts want things apart from God because we might get it right for two weeks or two months or two years, but eventually we're going to make a mistake. And if we're really honest, it wasn't such an innocent mistake. We were actually jealous of that person. We wanted what they had, their money, their gifts, their looks, their friends, their post-pregnancy body, whatever it is. Not mine. Anyway, carry on going. But the Bible says, do not covet. Don't want what another person has. And if we're really honest with ourselves, what we do is we covet what that person has because what we think is, if I had that thing, I'd be happier, more fulfilled, and have a better life. In other words, God, you're not actually enough for me. It's God plus that thing will make me happy. And really, sometimes we find ourselves getting frustrated with God because he didn't give us that thing. Ever been there? It's just me. Okay, I'm preaching about my own sin this morning. Don't worry. And in that moment, we realize that we made an idol of the thing. That's what the Bible says, that it's an act of idolatry. We put that thing in place of God. God doesn't sustain our heart, that thing does. Or maybe you've wanted a woman and you couldn't have her in the flesh, so you just thought about her in a sexual way. And Jesus taught that you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And if you're really honest with yourself, you don't love the way God loves You want to possess, you want to own, you want to control, and we've made an idol of sex. Or maybe you've actually been a Christian for a while, and you've actually managed to walk into some freedom from some outward bondages, and you found a measure of success, and then one day you see someone else who isn't in the place you're at, and you have this thought in your head. If they were willing to work as hard as I do, they'd also have money. Or if they studied the Bible like I did, or if they prayed like I did, or if they went on the courses that I've been on, they'd also be free in that area. And in that moment, we've fallen into the trap of the devil, which is pride, which is what got the devil kicked out of heaven, so why not us? Or maybe you've seen God bless other people. Man, you were so desperate for something and maybe a a promotion at work or maybe a a new home or maybe the chance to send your kid to that kind of school or give them that kind of opportunity and you saw God bless someone else. They got that promotion, that car. They got to marry before you did or whatever it was. And you're pretty sure that you've lived a better Christian life than they've have. You've prayed more prayers You've studied the Bible more, you've cried more tears, you've been more faithful. And in that moment, you realize that you think God has been unfair 
and unjust towards you and actually you think you're more righteous than God and you should be his judge. You see, it turns out when we go down this road of God sees my heart or God sees my intentions or God looks at my works, actually all you find at the end of that process is that the reason why God can't bless us or can't love us or can't forgive us because it's about our works What about the times when we get it wrong? And so we come to the same conclusion Paul does in this great chapter. No one is righteous. Not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. And all we see in our own heart is the very reason why God can't bless us. And maybe you've gone down this road like I did for so many years, a decade. Because I believed in a salvation, there was no salvation at all. And as Jesus says, if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. If you've placed your faith in a salvation that's no salvation at all, how deep that sense of despair and desperation will be. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Depressed yet? Cool, let's close in prayer. I'm joking. You see, into this space sprang the gospel. And into this space sprung the salvation that was really a salvation. The fact that there's another way to be right with God. Romans 3, 21 to 22. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him without keeping the requirements of the law, without our human behavior playing any role on whether or not we're right with God. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, that there's a way of being made right with God where your behavior is is a non-factor. And the question is, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Because you're either placing your faith in what you're doing or you're placing your faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you. And this idea, this truth, as plain as day, changed the world. I'm going to keep reading from that passage, Romans 3, 23 to 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. Isn't it glad that it's not full, full stop? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, comma, and, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Everyone say propitiation. Propitiation. <laughs> I know, by his blood to be received by faith. I'm going to explain some terms to you this morning. I've got five ideas that if you grab hold of them, they will be truth to you and they will change your life. First one, and are justified. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Can't forget it, okay? 
just as if I had never sinned. Justification in the doctrine or the teaching of justification by faith is really was at the heart of the Reformation, and this is what it is. Justification is a legal term meaning to acquit. It's the opposite of condemn. So if you're condemned, the judge looks at you and said, you did it, you've been found guilty, the guilt is with you, and we're going to punish you for it. If you're justified, the judge looks at you and says, you are righteous, you have no guilt, there's no punishment, and you know who the judge is in this case? God. Not your mother, or your stepmother, or your mother-in-law, or any other kind of mother, or father, or kid, or friend, or enemy, or boss, or yourself. You know that little voice in the back of your head which says, surely I'm guilty. You're not your own judge. And if God has looked at your life and said, you're justified, you are righteous in my sight, well then you're righteous. You can argue with the judge as much as you want, but you're not the judge. He is. And he's looked at your life and said, justified. You are righteous in my sight. And here's the thing, is that so many of us live our lives like we're in the courtroom every single day, awaiting the verdict of a judge. Did I do all right today? And so we wake up in the morning, and you try not to think any impure thought. And then you get up, and you go, I'm going to go make coffee for my wife. And maybe your wife is a little bit tired, and she snaps at you, and then you're like, ha-ha, you've really messed up today. And then you're like, ah, pride, sorry, Lord. And then you make a coffee, and then you think like you're doing all right, and then you hit traffic. My most unsanctified moments in my life are in the traffic. You know, some people put the stickers on the back of their car. In Durban, we've got the We Are Durban stickers. I don't. I just don't trust myself. <laughs> you know. And, and then you sin. And then you're like, oh, no, now I've got to be really sorry for my sin. Because if I, like, okay, if I, don't, if I sin and don't feel bad about it, then God's going to be mad. But then I'm like, I'm trying to convince God I'm really sorry. And everything that you're doing is basically saying, I'm still in the courtroom awaiting the verdict of a judge, trying to prove that I'm good enough to be declared righteous. But let me tell you, your court case finished 2,000 years ago. And the judge looked at you and said, you are righteous in my sight. It's over. Second one, having been justified, can you put that verse back up, please? That one. And are justified by His grace. As a gift. Ever received a gift when you knew there were strings attached? You know, like Aunt Molly gives you that jersey. Or maybe it's something you really wanted. It's not the, the jersey that Aunt Molly knitted. Maybe it's like a beautiful North Face soft shell jacket. She gave it to you, but you knew that this gift came with strings attached. And as she was handing it to you, said, Ooh, it'd be nice if you visited me sometime. And you know what that means. You know that's two hours with Aunt Molly and her dry scones. Making small talk. Listening about stories about her cat. Whatever it is. And you just know that that gift isn't a gift. It's actually meant to get something from you. That's not grace. How do you feel when someone gives you a gift that's not really a gift, when it comes with strings attached? 
inside we feel angsty. We feel uneasy. Because we don't quite know what's expected of us in return. And when we've paid our debts, and so many Christians live the same way. Inside, when it comes to God, we're angsty. We're uneasy. We're not quite sure when I've done enough. And if that's you this morning, you're believing in a salvation that's not a salvation at all. Because grace sets people free. And God gives it without any strings attached. Third point. Redemption. Someone could redeem my handwriting. That would be awesome. Redemption. Redemption means deliverance from some kind of evil by payment of a price. So if people are in slavery, the evil of slavery, the way they are redeemed is someone has to pay the price for them to set them free. Ever feel like some evil got hold of us? Some lust, some pride, some greed, some coveting, something that we feel we walk around with. But here's the thing, God has redeemed us through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the, is the price for your redemption, which means that you don't have to do anything. You don't have to pay a price to be set free from that thing. Ever struggled with the same sin again and again and again, and you've had this thought, man, if I ju- I'm just going to read my Bible more every day. I know I read it for 15 minutes, now 20. Ha, God, now you know I mean business. And then I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to watch the series. I'm just going to pray at night. And what you're really saying is, how do I pay a price so that God will set me free from this sin? The price is Jesus Christ and His blood. There's nothing left for you to pay. I've received the most radical freedom where God's broken sin off my life by simply going, normally we get to this point in our life, God, I'm exhausted. I can't do anymore. I give up. Please set me free. And God's like, finally. Because God works in our lives through redemption. Fourth point. And can everyone say this beautiful word with me? Whom God has put forward as a propitiation. Everyone say forward. Joking. Propitiation. (laughs) Propitiation. I love theology because it's got words like this, not because we get to be fancy, but because they mean something that can change people's lives. And by the way, if you're ever in a conversation again with someone about salvation, just ask them, look them directly in the eyes and say, but do you believe in propitiation or expiation for your sins? And whatever they say, just go tut, 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 and roll your eyes. Big theological debate. And then repent of the pride later, you know? Um, The definition of propitiation is the removal of wrath by the offering of a gift. Ever heard of some crime or read some article in a newspaper where you physically felt angry and you're like, someone must pay? Ever had that? It's called a desire for justice. God's wired it into us. That's wrath. When... And what this says is that God removes wrath from our lives by the offering of a gift. And the gift is the very blood of Jesus. 
this concept seems a little bit foreign to us, but it actually exists quite strongly in a lot of ancient cultures. Um, and I spent four years in Israel, and uh, in Israel there's these people called the Bedouin, and they're Muslim Arabs, uh, they used to travel all over, but you know the borders uh, in that region make it quite tricky to leave Israel now, so now they live in cities. But they still retain such aspects of their culture, and so if there's a wrong, if someone's been wronged within the Bedouin culture, the way that the, the wrath is abated or the wrath is removed is by the paying of a price. Literally, they've had things where the feuds have existed between families and people have been killed back and forth, back and forth, and eventually the government comes in. If they can't find the people, obviously they want to put them in jail, but the Israeli government has literally come in and brokered a deal where the one family will pay restitution to the other and vice versa, and once the payment happens then there's peace. In fact, it ends with a meal. So this is how it works on a minor scale. So say you're driving through a bedroom village uh, and you, you hit a goat and you kill the man's goat. And then if you stop the car and the guy comes out, don't stop the car, but if you stop the car um, and the guy comes out, then he's going to say, you killed my goat. You owe me a $1,000. And you look at the goat and you're like, yo, but it looked like a very old goat. He's like, ah, oh, okay, it was quite old. Okay, $500. And you're like, hey, it's got a gammy leg, but I think it was like that before I hit it with the car. It's like, oh, okay, fair enough, $200. Eventually you settle on a price. And then you pay the price to the man, and then at that point, that person no longer has a right to be angry with you because the price has been paid. In fact, what happens straight after that is they come and they bring food out, and you eat together because in that culture, they will never eat with someone that they're at war with. But if they eat together, they say, we've got peace here which is exactly what we have in communion. The price has been paid. Now we have peace and we can have a relationship with God. And here's the point. I don't know how to say this any more simply. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, God is not angry with you. And there is no punishment for your sins. In other words, there's nothing you have in your relationship with God that you don't have to look forward to. Which brings me to my last point. The way all of this is possible and comes into our lives, faith. To be received by faith. See, here's the thing is that if you're working for these things, you can't receive them. Because the way you receive is to go like this and say thank you. But if you're working, you're holding the board in place, you're hammering, God, look how hard I'm praying, look how hard I'm serving, look how hard I'm trying. You're working, and he's going, here's a gift. And you're like, just, just, I'm doing what I need to get the gift. And you're like, the only way you can receive is to put down the tools of your trade and your faith and to come to God and say, God, I receive what you've got for me. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for my sins. And that he rose from the dead so I can have fullness of life. That's what God wants from us. To receive by faith what most of us are working so hard to get through our efforts. And that's a salvation that's really a salvation. Because you're either going to place faith in what you're doing or what Jesus Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for the salvation that's really a salvation. 
for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And Father God, I just pray that we walk in the fullness of your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Gary. Why don't you give him a hand? I just think that was great. Thank you so much. Um, I just wanted to share something with you. This, this week I woke up, I think on Tuesday or Wednesday morning, with a, this word from God clearly actually just woke me up, and the word was unbelief. And I felt that this was a word for this community, and I believe that some of you are potentially struggling with some form of unbelief, whether it's just unbelief about who God is or Jesus or Holy Spirit in your life. And for some of you, it's just unbelief in an area. And um, a couple of weeks back, um, Mahabi had this word that it was vulnerability that would lead to breakthrough. And over the last few weeks, where we've seen people step forward and, and be brave enough and courageous enough to go like, okay, uh, I, I need to help with that, or I need prayer for that. As we've seen people step out in vulnerability, we have seen breakthrough. And um, in just like reading up and praying about unbelief, I was just reminded of um, this that Paul said um, in Timothy, he said, I was shown mercy because I had acted in ignorance and unbelief. And really the ignorance is where you just can't understand and the unbelief is where you are resistant to truth. And um, what I know can happen in a moment with Holy Spirit, um, if, if you just step out and you're vulnerable and say, I need, I need help with this, I need prayer for this, I need to open myself up to this. When you step out in that, Holy Spirit can come through and do in a second or a minute, what 25 years of therapy couldn't even do. I'm being honest when I say that. And so I believe that there are maybe a couple of you in this room today who really need help in an area of unbelief, whether it's just about who God is or whether it's for a specific area where you're going, I just don't believe that God can do that. I really want to invite you to come up for prayer. And then a random thing. Did anyone last night dream about a cat? I'm putting myself out there. Think about it. Anyone dream about a cat? No, okay, I was wrong. If anyone outside in the courtyard dreamt about a cat, please come. I know that I need to pray with you. So um, that was me being vulnerable. <laughs> and vulnerable, really, that word is where you're exposed and you could feel a moment of pain and, and looking at the, the laughter in your face as I'm feeling that moment of pain. But it doesn't matter because um, I was just doing something in a moment of obedience and high risk. So I'm just going to close in prayer, but I really want to encourage you, if you have got that, that area of unbelief in your life, won't you please come forward and just let us pray for you and let Holy Spirit with Paul... Holy Spirit did in Paul what, what nothing else could have. On that road to Damascus, he, Holy Spirit came and radically transformed Paul's life. And, and that, that Holy Spirit radical transformation is available to each and every one of us who just want to step out and be vulnerable. So God, just thank you for today. We thank you for this incredible truth that we've heard of today. God, the freedom that we get to live in because of what we've heard today and the truth that, that of what Christ's life did for us and the power that we have because of Holy Spirit. God, may not one of us just continue in our own strength. May we not continue in striving. May we not continue with our own good works. But may we just understand and grasp what is available to us because of your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.